We're here to stop your heart, in a good way. The delirious onrush of emotion, the rapture of falling in love with a person, with a book, with an art form. In the past few years, many people have found that heart-stopping feeling through the work, online, in books, on screen, via Netflix, of Alice Oseman. Alice's first book was published when they were just 20, and their subsequent Heartstopper series, following the relationship of school friends Nick and Charlie and the people close to them, has become a bit of a sensation. Scientists reported an 80% increase in happy tears during the first Netflix series. I mean, that's not verified, but it's probably true. And the second series is about to launch. I'm David Jays, and we're excited to invite Alice onto Why Dance Matters, the Royal Academy of Dance podcast. But why are they on a dance podcast, you ask? Good question. Alice has a remarkable gift for conjuring movement in just a few graphic lines. And Heartstopper is all about young people finding ways to express themselves creatively and emotionally, becoming the people they want to be. And the RAD is all about that, but even more on the nose. Alice's mother is a dance teacher. I know, they couldn't be a more perfect guest, and we're thrilled to have a chance to talk to them. Alice's work speaks directly and meaningfully to readers of all ages. My school days are thankfully far behind me, but I was a mess reading Heartstopper. And it especially connects with young people in the full, bewildering churn of growing up. Alice has clearly given a lot of thought to the relationship with readers for whom this is personal. I have lots of fan questions too, plus the all-important one. Does dance matter to Alice? Alice, welcome to Why Dance Matters. Hi, thanks for having me. Total pleasure. And you have written amazing novels, you've written amazing graphic novels, you are a screen sensation. (laughs) But first, we have to talk about your mother, obviously, because your mother is was a dance teacher she is yes yeah so my mum is trudy oseman she is one of the directors of a community dance school called the bluebell school of dance it's been her life's passion and she teaches ballet and so obviously i did ballet growing up um, <laughs> of course. And was that from a really young age? Were you a tiny bunhead? Yes, I, I think I must have been two um, <gasps> when I started, you know, baby ballet. <laughs> How long did that continue? I did it all the way until I was 14. Oh, proper. That really is. And I mean, it seems silly to ask if you enjoyed it. Maybe you didn't have a choice. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think seeing as I was two, I probably didn't have a choice. <laughs> But I did really enjoy it. I I really enjoyed so much of it. I mainly did ballet. And then when I got a little bit older, I did modern and tap as well. So I was kind of doing dance three-ish times a week until my mid-teens. 
Oh, wow. And did your mum take you to sea dance as well? Yes, she did. Not loads. I do remember I went to the ballet a few times. A long time ago now. I haven't been <laughs> to sea dance for quite a long time, but I've definitely been to see the ballet a few times. Oh, wow. And being taught by your mother, it can be a fraught <laughs> dynamic. <laughs> it can yes. be joyful. What was it for you? It was never really a source of conflict for me, I think, because my mum is not the sort of maybe a bit stereotypical image people sometimes have of ballet teachers, which is super strict and, you know, scary. But I'm sure that's not true. That's just a stereotype. <laughs> and, and that definitely wasn't true of my mum. She's a very sort of warm and loving person and such a good teacher as well. So it never felt awkward or weird at all. Maybe also just because I've been doing it since I was two. It was just my life. Yeah. When we have dancers on the podcast, I will quite often ask if they were little show-off kids. And the answer is often yes, <laughs> very pleasingly. For a writer, for an artist, I guess the stereotype there would be that you were quite a solitary little kid doing things in corners quietly by yourself. Is that how it was? I think in some ways, yes. That was definitely true of me when I got a little bit older. When I got more into my teens, that was definitely true. But I think as a child, I was definitely a little bit of a show off. <laughs> <laughs> In dance, I remember, you know, always wanting to be at the front or making up my own dances there was a little bit of a show off in me, definitely, as a young child. <laughs> and I guess that comes in handy now when you are shoved into the spotlight more than many authors would experience. D does it help to have that kind of performing confidence? Absolutely, yeah. When you asked me to come be on this show, I, that was one of the first things that I thought about was how much confidence just having done dance has given me throughout my life. When I was at school, I never really got that nervous about school exams. And I always attribute that to the fact that I'd done dance and had been put in quite scary, you know, nerve-inducing situations, you know, being on a stage, having to perform in front of loads of people. That's quite scary for a, for a young child. But having done that has given me so much confidence and made a lot of other things a lot less scary in comparison. That's brilliant to hear because it is one of the archetypal nightmares, isn't it? That you find yourself on a stage <laughs> and there's an audience gazing at you full of expectation. Yeah. It's quite nice to have <laughs> had that experience before you're even 10 years old, yeah. I guess. When did writing and drawing come into the mix alongside dance and other forms of imagination and creativity? Writing and art, they were things I'd been doing ever since I was small. They were passions of mine, they were hobbies. Um, I loved drawing, I loved writing stories and they were just constants for me as I was growing up. When I got into my sort of late teens and started thinking about careers and you know what I wanted to do with my life, those were the two things that really stuck out for me as the things that I could imagine myself doing for the rest of my life. So, um, yeah, they've just been a part of my life forever. And unlike dance, where you have constant correction and encouragement and feedback 
from a teacher. I guess this is a field in which you mostly find your own way and your own path through. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. When you're doing it for a career, obviously, you have lots of people who you're working with. You know, if you're writing a book, you have an editor. And with the TV writing, you have other executive producers who you're working with. But when you're growing up, finding your way into these artistic passions, they really are a solitary thing. With my writing, I didn't tell anyone that I was writing stories for a really long time. Didn't tell any of my friends, didn't tell my parents, because it just felt like my thing. And I didn't want anyone else's opinions, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> cool. And so when you wrote your, what became your first published book, Solitaire, were you just doing that as a passion project, not knowing if it ever would find a readership at all? Yeah, I started writing Solitaire when I was still at school. Uh, I was 17 and it was just for fun. I wanted to write a book that I wanted to read. At that time, it was the sort of rise of young adult fiction. Authors like John Green were becoming really popular. Books that were sort of set in schools about relationship drama and friendships and all that kind of stuff. And I really wanted to find a book like that about the world that I knew. You know, I went to an all-girls school in Kent, but I couldn't find any books that sort of represented my experience of being at school. So that is what I wanted to do with Solitaire. And it, it literally was just for fun. It was just something that I really enjoyed doing. And it wasn't until I had nearly finished writing the book that I thought, I really like this book. Um, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> Maybe there's a chance that something could come of it. And who was the first person to read it? Did, did anyone read it before you sent it off? I think I had one friend read it, but no one else. Yeah, it was a very, very private thing. Yeah. Yeah, I can't work out if that's extraordinary confidence or extraordinary anxiety <laughs> or a bit of both. Definitely, I think a bit of both, yeah. <laughs> afterwards two of the supporting characters from that story became the centre of Heartstopper which started off in comic book form which suits characters who can't always put their feelings into words which is the case with Charlie and Nick. Is that part of the reason why you felt that was the form to tell that story? Yeah I think that is a big part of it. I mean when I decided I wanted to tell the story of Nick and Charlie. I originally thought I was going to write another book, another prose novel, because that was what I'd done in solitaire. That was what I knew how to do. But when I actually came down to trying to plan the story, it just wouldn't fit into the format of a prose novel. It didn't have the kind of beginning, middle, end structure that you get in a normal book. So I decided I wanted to tell it in a more serialised form, like a webcomic. That way I got to kind of combine it with my passion for drawing as well. It's all about feelings that are unsaid and, you know, feelings they don't quite understand and don't know how to vocalise. And showing that through art is 
a really great way to portray that. Yeah. And you are so good at bodies, Alice. You're and the the electrical charge around them. And the movement is so often charged with emotion in those stories. The hand that reaches out, the hand that doesn't dare reach out, those kind of spaces between bodies and the way they move is just thrillingly electric. Does that come from observation? Are you always sketching? Do you try things out on your own body before you draw them? Yeah, definitely. Drawing people, that's kind of all I've ever drawn. You know, I've never had much interest in drawing landscapes or buildings. (laughs) (laughs) It's always been people and characters and expressions. When people ask me, you know, how, how did you develop your style? How did you learn how to draw? It's just practice. It really is just practice having drawn so much over the years and studied other art and you know studied real bodies as well often when I'm drawing the comic if there's a complicated body position or like hand position or something like that I just take a photo of myself (laughs) and then (laughs) draw that uh, basically so yeah You didn't kind of hire a tame rugby team to come in and (laughs) (laughs) do some some scrummage. (laughs) And it must be a really satisfying sensation when you draw something and you think, yeah, that's exactly how Charlie would do, ruffle his hair or or whatever. Yeah, definitely. People have really seized on the queer joy of this story as well. Was that important to you when you were thinking about it? Yeah, absolutely. In Solitaire, I had these two characters, Nick and Charlie, who are already in a relationship. And it's a really strong, really loving, supportive relationship. And that sparked the initial interest in me telling their story because I wanted to know how they became such a strong amazing couple because that's not really explored in solitaire yeah heartstopper was about telling their origin story initially it was about telling their romance and i wanted it to feel realistic you know it has real life issues in the story but at the same time always optimistic and hopeful and joyful you know you know that these characters are going to be okay in the end the the joy is a really big part of Heartstopper. And we're talking at a time where there is a pushback on teaching LGBTQ ideas on trans representation books are being banned and removed in some libraries and this is especially in the states but in other places too it almost makes something like heartstopper a political project by default was that i'm guessing wasn't necessarily where you started from but it's it's something that has fed into the conversation around the book i think yeah absolutely it wasn't my intention to write anything to make a point or to be used in any arguments or anything like that. It really was just about telling this lovely story about these two characters. It's been really interesting to see the swarm of popularity that Heartstopper has gained over the past few years, despite the rising anger and bigotry surrounding 
queer books, particularly queer books in schools. It's been really sad to see Heartstopper being challenged and being banned in various schools, particularly in America. It's, yeah, it, it's it's hard to sort of comprehend why such a sort of innocent love story could possibly be deemed inappropriate. Yeah, that's sort of where we're at, I guess, at the moment. Yeah. And we're also in that post-pandemic world where a lot of schools, a lot of teachers, a lot of parents report rising levels of anxiety and mental health concerns in their students and in their children. You must, especially as the story has gained momentum and found a wider audience, you must get a lot of reader responses and people wanting to share anxieties and questions with you. How do you deal with all of that and what kind of responses do you give? I get lots of messages from readers and I've met lots of readers at events. They want to share their stories with me and tell me about their hardships and things that they're dealing with. And honestly, it's just really good to know that I've made something that is helping people. Heartstopper is so joyful, like we've, we've said before. It, it's something that people can turn to when they're having a bad day. They can just pick up the book and it doesn't take very long to read and it's it's a happy story and it'll just cheer you up <laughs> no book can kind of solve everyone's problems but it is good to know that I've put something positive into the world and as you said when you first started writing you had no idea if your work would ever find an audience at all when was the first time you realized that Heartstopper was landing and was reaching people. I launched Heartstopper, the webcomic, in 2016. It kind of slowly sort of gained readers as it was being uploaded for free to read online. But I think I didn't understand the reach of it until I decided to self-publish the first volume. So I talked to my agent about the fact that I wanted a physical book of Heartstopper to exist. We had a conversation and she sort of said, you know, there's not really a market for it in the UK. There aren't really any other books like this out there. Publishers don't know if it's going to sell. So there's not really any chance of it being traditionally published. I was kind of expecting her to say that. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so I decided instead to self-publish the first volume. And to do that, I did a crowdfunding campaign it was very stressful. <laughs> it was a very stressful setup process. And I was really nervous about it, you know, not sure whether I was going to raise enough money for it. But I ended up reaching the target goal within two hours of it being. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, people like this comic, <laughs> people want to read this book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that's pretty definitive. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> I guess no one can necessarily guide you or prepare you for a vast and devoted readership and your responsibility towards them. What readers call the Oseman verse is uh, that wonderful world of your interconnected stories again is that something you have to 
navigate your own way through and work out what you feel comfortable with and how much you need to give beyond the work itself? Yes. See, the thing is that I've always had a kind of relationship with the readers of my books. I've always enjoyed talking to them online, answering questions, you know, being someone that they can actually reach out to and communicate with, not just being a sort of faceless author. It's kind of ever-changing is what I've what I've really experienced. When I started, I had some passionate readers of my books who really liked my books, but there weren't that many of them. And I could easily talk to them on Twitter or Tumblr. It was an enjoyable sort of thing that I could do. But now that there are so many more readers of my books, it's become a lot more difficult to have that direct communication. In recent years, I've tried to kind of find ways to still feel that direct connection with my readers, but it does become extremely overwhelming very easily. There are just so many of them now and they don't necessarily want to talk to me. (laughs) 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 They're kind of doing their own thing, which is absolutely fine. You know, they're, they're readers who want to have their own space and write fan fiction or make fan art and discuss theories about the story and they don't really want me to be there um and I won't <laughs> be there either you know so it's very different now to how it was when I started I think I'm still figuring out how to find that connection with readers and and what I really enjoy doing and at the same time the idea that the ownership of those characters passes from you to the readers is also kind of lovely, isn't it? Do you ever get people telling you, actually, I don't think Nick would say that. I don't think Tori would do that. Definitely. <laughs> has has <yeah>. that happened? <laughs> that happens a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I often see that. Um, people on, online saying, particularly when they read my old works, you know, people who read Solitaire, uh, they're like, oh, you know, Nick and Charlie seem a bit different in Solitaire. They, I don't think Nick and Charlie would say that. It doesn't bother me really because it's just people who care about the characters and enjoy having their own interpretations and that's such a big part of any art form. And I mean you're still in your 20s but you're sort of I guess a decade removed from a lot of the settings that you're now writing about and imagining. Is teenage Alice still very close to the surface? Do you have to work harder to put your head in the right space for this stories it gets harder every year (laughs) it really does I mean when I started writing obviously I was a teenager and I was just writing what I knew I was just writing about the world around me and the voices around me but now I am not a teenager (laughs) so I am actively having to think about how teenagers today are speaking to each other and their interests that differs quite a lot to what life was like when I was a teenager because it's been 10 years and so much has changed but like going back to when we were talking about fans that's a big part of why I do try and stay connected to the readers of my books is because they are mostly teenagers and 
it's really helpful for me to see just how they're they're chatting to each other and what they're interested in. And I feel like if I stopped that connection with those readers, I would easily become very disconnected to the teens of today. What surprises you about the teens of today? Are there things that can still throw you slightly off balance? Sometimes it's just little things like terminology and vocabulary. I'll put a phrase into Heartstopper and someone will comment, oh, that's such a millennial thing to say. And I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) So crushing. So cruel. Yeah, I know. It's just little things like that. And you and your readers obviously had such vivid images of this world because you had drawn those vivid images. Were you nervous about reimagining it for the screen when when Netflix came calling? Absolutely. I I think it's a very scary and risky thing to do to make an adaptation of a book, especially your own book that you you really love and you don't want to ruin. Book adaptations don't always go well. (laughs) They can (laughs) quite bad. Yes, Um, there is a long history of of that. Tell me about, Alice, the physical act of creation. I've read that you like to work sitting up straight. That's how you draw. Is that a discipline thing? I guess it is. Creating a webcomic is a very physical task, I would say. I have to draw every single day. My aim is to draw one page every day, and that kind of keeps me on schedule. Um, So that's about three or four hours of drawing every day. I have to be sitting at a desk in a very rigid, upright chair. And if I don't do that, or if I draw more than that, if I'm sitting slightly wrong, I will just injure myself. And there are so many webcomic artists who develop quite serious injuries from drawing too much or from sitting badly or, you know, whatever So is, it, is this sort of posture related, yeah, as it were? Yeah. Is it backs and shoulders and those kinds of Absolutely, things? Absolutely, yeah. It's just so easy to injure yourself from drawing too much. <laughs> we talk a lot about dance injuries, obviously, on, on this podcast. <laughs> and I had no idea there was even more high-risk activity out there. <laughs> I guess that's also, though, that is perhaps part of the dance legacy because there is no more dedicated body of people I think I've met than dancers mm. and more disciplined. Do you think that that training has also infiltrated the way in which you approach your work? Maybe. The dance school that I went to, of some of the dance schools that I knew about, it was one of the more relaxed dance schools in a good way, in that you didn't have to be an amazing dancer to be a part of this dance school but it still encouraged me we did exams every year we did show every year I did some sort of local dance festival competitions that definitely required discipline I mean you had to practice you had to go home and do it at home and learn the steps and remember everything and that was just a part of my life like for a really long time. And I can definitely see how that 
taught me how to focus and be determined when I want to achieve something. One thing that I really like about myself now is that when I want to make something, I will do it. (laughs) I can really put my mind to the task and make myself do things, even if it's hard or even if it's something that I don't really want to do, which was definitely the case when it came to like ballet exams. (laughs) Didn't want to do those, but I did. (laughs) (laughs) And it does sound, because we've been talking about how you keep that joy and that excitement and that interest going through a career to have your mother who it sounds has very much done that and continues to do that Mm. there I guess that must be kind of an encouraging example yeah absolutely I mean my mum is such a creative person and ballet is her passion in the same way that writing and drawing is my passion every moment she's not at her day job she is thinking about ballet she is doing things related to ballet it's the same with me. So I definitely inherited that, that trait. Alice, I think the time for the final question has come. <laughs> Which is, why does dance matter to you? I think I have two answers for this. And the first one is confidence. It's given me a sort of inner confidence, a very natural inner confidence when it comes to so many other aspects of my life. I do a lot of public appearances as an author. I do some public speaking. I I have to do things like this, like come on a podcast and talk. <laughs> and having done dance being on stage, being in front of lots of people, being in high pressure situations like exams, that has made things like this a lot easier and has made me feel comfortable expressing myself and being in front of lots of people. The second part of my answer is creativity. I've had so many different aspects of creativity in my life growing up I've had writing I've had drawing and before you invited me on this podcast I really hadn't thought about how being creative in dance has been such a big part of my life exploring and expressing my emotions through music and through movement has been fun it's been exciting it's been something that I have loved to do and while dance isn't my life's passion it has been something that has brought me so much joy throughout my childhood and has allowed me to express myself physically in a way that writing and drawing definitely doesn't (laughs) and that has just been a really lovely and joyful thing to have had in my life that is why dance matters to me. <laughs> Alice, it has just been such a pleasure to swim through the Oseman verse with you. Thank you so much. It's been a real treat. Thank you so much for having me. I loved that. Hearing what dance has given Alice, the confidence to address a room, meet an audience, is really inspiring. And a reminder that dance lessons don't have to lead to the stage to be life-changing. 
I hope you enjoyed hearing them. Do let me know what you think and your own heart-stopping dance moments. I'm at Mr. David Jays on Twitter and the RAD is at RAD Headquarters. And if there's anyone with an unexpected dance connection you think we should invite onto the podcast, do let us know. There's also links to Alice's work and the RAD in our show notes. And go on, do subscribe, like or review the podcast so that we can carry on finding our tribe with Why Dance Matters. Our guest today was Alice Oseman. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Neve Carey Furness, Keisha Dodd and Katie Hagen. And our artwork is by Bex Glendening. And our producer is the always heart-stopping Sarah Miles. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon.